I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to the Brand is Female podcast. Wow, 2021, we made it. And I'm thrilled to be starting the year with the one and only Penny Abiwardina, New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs. In her role, Penny acts as the ambassador for the largest city administration in North America. But what makes her story so fascinating is the fact she's overcome major hurdles along her journey. Penny came to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant from Sri Lanka, and she put herself through an Ivy League education, paving the way to impressive professional opportunities. Prior to joining the city of New York, Penny worked on women's rights for the Clinton Global Initiative. She's also been an advisor to the Biden-Harris Policy Committee, and she's been an advocate against domestic violence inspired by her own experience. Penny is a champion for sustainability and human rights, and she's been recognized by global leaders from the UN to the World Economic Forum. She's also a mom and all-around impressive woman. Before my conversation with Penny, let's hear from our podcast partners who make this season possible. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. Okay, and we're live. Penny, it's such a pleasure having you on The Brand is Female today. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And can I just tell you, I love the name, The Brand is Female. I will always do things mm -hmm. for The Brand is Female. I, I love people who love the name. Well, first, you have uh, what I call a truly inspiring story. Uh, you came to the U.S. I'm basically going to be you know, reading your bio for you, but you came to the U.S. <laughs> as a, an undocumented immigrant with your, mm -hmm. your parents from Sri Lanka. Um, if, if we fast forward today, you are the uh, Commissioner for International mm -hmm. Affairs for the City of New York. That's very impressive. And what kept you motivated? What was and what still keeps you motivated? What, what's been kind of that, uh, you know, that, that fire for you that, uh, that keeps you wanting to achieve all these things? Well, thank you. Um, it's impressive. It's also lucky. <laughs> so there has been a lot of hard work that has um, coincided um, with some good luck. Um, I think what motivated me early on was the struggle, to be completely honest. Um, I was undocumented in um, in like the in the 80s. And that was a time I grew up in um, the San Fernando Valley, which you know, I think um, there were like three brown kids in the school that I went to um, and I got teased mercilessly. Um, and, you know, I think my mom, uh, you know, we're survivors of domestic violence. And so I just saw how hard my mom worked um, to ensure that we got to school, we were safe and fed, you know, some basics um, that I think a lot of families um, and mothers in particular take on. And so there was always this instinct, and I love um, my mom for this because she's South Asian, you know, Sri Lankan mama. She has never cared about me getting married, dating, or having a kid. She's just like, go to school, work hard, and get paid. And can I tell you that? Wow. <laughs> that was motivating largely because her, her fundamental was survival, right? Mm -hmm. And given what we experienced when I was young, what she's what she experienced for much of her childhood, she wanted to ensure that her kids were able to survive um, and succeed on their own and never 
base it on the relationship you're in. And so just seeing what my mom went through really motivated me to um, get into women's rights issues. Um, you know, I think being a survivor of domestic violence, being undocumented in the U.S. in the 80s, um, instilled a hustling mentality that mm -hmm. I have to be honest, um, continues to, to pay off um, to today. Hustling, being entrepreneurial, I think they're, you know, <laughs> the same coin. Um, and yeah. so that, that has kept me um, motivated to continue to, to do the work that I do that has impact on community. It's really started within mm -hmm. the women's rights community. Um, and now it's um, even broader, I think, in terms of the, the human rights work that I do. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and speaking of the work that you do, was that a clear calling? Was that something that came to you when you were in school or even younger? Like, when did it feel like you had found your calling and your, your true purpose uh, in life? You know, I didn't really know. So I came to the U.S. when I was four and I didn't go back to Sri Lanka until I was 19. And oh, wow. at that time, Sri Lanka was still in the midst of a civil war. And, you know, unfortunately, within our the Sri Lankan civil war, um, suicide bombing um, was a weapon of choice. Women tended to be the suicide bombers. And I looked Indian. Um, I looked Northern Indian. And so that mm -hmm. first time back, I couldn't get over how militarized the society was, but women in particular. I was constantly pulled over and searched because I could be a potential um, uh, suicide bomber. And I think that was the first time I really started to think about women's rights in mm -hmm. a war, um, civil war context. And that really, um, you know, opened my eyes, politicized me, however you want to think about it, um, to start doing the work. So when I came back, I think I was like a sophomore at USC, and I started interning at Human Rights Watch. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started to um, meet women who were working in every context, in every um, women's rights context around the world, learn about them, hear about them. And I just got inspired and I knew I wanted to do something like that. So that really started the path. Um, you know, I am a diplomat now uh, for, you know, one of the, I think, arguably one of the most important cities in the world. But I really started thinking about how can we change um, core systems for women to succeed, right? That's why I actually like thinking about women's rights in, in the term of like enabling women rather than empowering them, because this is more than doing something for them. This is about providing mm -hmm. the context, whether it's childcare or reproductive health that lets them be who they are. And so that is really what I, um, how I started in the movement. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and speaking of that work, so prior to joining the city of New York, you spent time at the Clinton Global Initiative mm -hmm. focused on uh, women's rights and, and youth rights. Um, so what would you say is still the, the number one challenge? Maybe there's more than one, but we're just entering a new year. I can't believe I'm saying that, but we're entering mm -hmm. 2021. Uh, we know there's still, there's a long list of, uh, of important challenges that we're, we need to tackle um, and then COVID added a few to the list. Um, but in terms of getting closer to gender equality and really helping improve women's rights globally, what are still some of the top challenges that we need to be addressing? 
You know, so much of it is, I like that you asked what, rather than asking what the silver bullet is, because everybody's looking for that one, is it economic empowerment? Is it education? Um, You need it all. And the one, and the challenge continues to be systemic, right? So it's going to be different, you know, what's happening in New York City or what's happening in Nairobi. But at the end of the day, the challenge to women being able to um, be themselves fully at home in the workplace really become systemic. So from a New York City perspective, this is part of the reason I have loved um, working within the de Blasio administration over the last six years is because we've taken on a lot of these challenges systemically, right? So here's an example that hit home to me um, a few years ago when I was pregnant with my son. There was no parental leave for anyone that works for the city of New York. Um, something like that, that's very significant. Obviously there's a federal FMLA, which allows you to not like lose your job. Well, thanks, but I can't afford <laughs> you know, to, to not get paid while I take care of my, my infant. Um, and so yeah. I think those are the kinds of things, again, everything from affordable housing to our focus on ch- early childhood education. These are the systemic things that allow the children to thrive, but also let women who are, you know, largely and COVID has shown, we have borne the brunt of mm-hmm. everybody staying at home who is a caretaker of children. So systemically, that is, to me, the thing that we have to figure out how to take on. And obviously, COVID has added a layer of complexity around, again, women are at home. Let's talk about things like domestic violence. Um, now there are women and children who are stuck at home with their survivors with very few ways, outlets, to mm-hmm. get to get the support that they need. Um, so I just think that as we look into the next year and your listeners, as you think about what you can do, it's also thinking about the systemic rather than the, the Band-Aid, right? To fix yeah. one yeah. problem. It's actually looking mm-hmm. at what the root is, you know? So in the mm-hmm. US, something like childcare, we have the same understanding of the way that childcare should be from 50 years ago. When women made up like less than half, you know, like 20% of the workforce, now we make up well more than 50%. And we still don't have childcare. We still don't have federally mandated parental leave. So these are the kinds of things systemically that I think will take us, um, what that we need to address <laughs> full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and it's so it's so important. Congratulations on, on all the work you're, you're doing and uh, how vocal you are about about all these issues, because it's so it's so important to inspire change. And and, you know, as a, as a segue to that, did you ever regret your your path? Do, do you ever think about what else you, you could be doing or should be doing? Are there moments where you're kind of questioning like making money? <laughs> you know, among, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> um. No. And I think part of it, and this is what I, this is um, sort of conversations and advice I give um, to friends and to colleagues. I love the work that I do. I've Mm -hmm. always, I like think about, you know, when I'm like looking at my resume and I'm thinking about what's next, I'm like, wow, there's like not one, one job in there that I was ever like, I did not enjoy. And so what I did was I decided to build skill sets. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even in your 20s, you don't get the sexiest job that you want, but I'm building a certain skill set. But I always worked for organizations, institutions that I respect and value. And I felt was having an impact with the community that I cared about. And that at the core, and it's interesting that you're asking me now. So I have 
one more year left as commissioner for international affairs. And when, you know, everybody's asking me like, what do you think you'll do next? You know? Mm -hmm. And the more I dive into it, I just know it has to be a job that makes, that continues to make me feel like I am having impact because that directly correlates to my feeling good, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a lot of jobs I can quickly X out because they might pay better. They might be more prestigious or in certain, um, you know, in certain places that I want to live, but really um, I do continue want to, to feel good about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's always uh, an inspiring uh, lesson. Um, let's talk about that recent moment where uh, a, a certain woman by the name of Kamala was elected um, as as vice president for to the United States. You share a few things in common. You are both of South Asian heritage. Um, she she's a, a woman leader. She's certainly put in her own time working in public administration. Uh, over the years. What does that represent to you in terms of a kind of a, a change in, you know, female leadership in, in the world of politics? So Kamala coming in as vice president in a couple of weeks, um, there's a there's a lot of feelings. And you have to remember some of these feelings are personal because I'm a woman that's championed women's rights. I'm South Asian. But we've also just barely survived the Trump administration. So I don't know how politically you want to get. But I, um, you know, I I am so relieved um, to see, you know, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris coming in. But to me, what really matters, too, is as a woman of color, the issues that she's going to represent. So Mm -hmm. while she's been senator, she has brought a number of things that reflect being a black woman or a South Asian woman. For example, in in the US, um, maternal mortality is ridiculously sinfully high amongst our black and brown population. She's one of the first that has introduced legislation to like to address that. And Mm -hmm. that is what, you know, beyond the, I wanna see more women like me in power, it's not for the sake of it. It's because you know how they will lead, how that will. And there's nothing I've learned more in my six years here with New York City and working in public administration, how much public policy matters. People do not realize, I mean, we were talking before this about COVID-19 and how, how Montreal is handling it, but the number of people that can walk down the street together in New York City is mandated by public policy. Like everything we do is, you know, to a certain effect influenced by public policy. And when it is women like us that are creating that policy, that's how I think getting back to your earlier question, we're going to address the institutional changes that we need for women to really be able to thrive in our societies. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was a very long-winded, wonky way of saying it's freaking awesome. (laughs) I am. I mean, that's how I would sum it up. I I, I am psyched. I can't wait for January twentieth. Um. So recently, you've been called to play kind of a different role than your typical, uh, you know, duties as as commissioner for international affairs. So when COVID hit. Um, especially because you you are based at 
what was the epicenter of the uh, the, the first wave of, of COVID. New York City was badly hit, as we know. Um, tell me about that time, because I know it led to some interesting um, you know, new additions to your, to your job description. <laughs> truly unfortunate. Um, yeah, you know, back in March, um, April, May, June, it was just terrifying in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, we had up to 5,000 positive cases a day, up to 800 deaths per day. Um, you know, literally we heard either birds chirping. I mean, New York city shut down or ambulances. It was, it was just a really terrifying time. So as commissioner, um, New York city is host to the largest diplomatic corps in the world. So we have the UN, we have the permanent missions that, you know, sort of represent to the UN, but we also have 116 consulates. So a different arm of the foreign ministry that's really engaged with our immigrant communities and something that really, um, you know, sort of, took me by surprise is that they all stayed, Um, you know, and so Mm -hmm. all the diplomats, all the senior leaders were in New York City, essentially living New York City as the front lines of this pandemic along with me. And it was very interesting, sort of the conversations and relationships that emerged from it. But it became very clear early on that the way that my agency and my leadership and my relationships um, were going to come into play is that we desperately needed, and again, this has been the tension with the Trump administration, um, we weren't going to get the support that we needed from our federal government. So mm-hmm. we became at International Affairs essentially like chief procurement officer officers from, you know, foreign governments for PPE, how to source ventilators. Um, It was so, it was just a really unfortunate time, but something I will always be proud of because we showed up for New Yorkers. There was, there were moments where we had photos of doctors and nurses in garbage bags in Queens at Elmhurst because they didn't have enough PPE. Um, The UN, which we've had an extraordinary relationship with for the last six years, you know, stepped up on that relationship, gave mm-hmm. us a historical donation of a quarter million PPE from their own stockpile on HQ campus. Mm-hmm. And mind you, this wow. is coming, this is something that is coming from, you know, the UN doesn't engage with municipalities really, right? It's member okay. states. This was yeah. their recognition that New York City was the front line. So that that mm-hmm. is what has, that occurred. Um, during that during that period when we were the epicenter but i think it just builds on the work that we'd had with the international community prior to covid and now is such an extremely important opportunity in terms of how we rebuild better right we mm-hmm. believe yeah. that all of these issues are beyond but whatever is happening in east new york we can learn from other countries to bring those best practices to our community and vice versa. And so how we are building that global platform has just gotten reinforced through this um, experience of COVID-19 in spring here. Mm. Well, and I'm actually gonna bring up, so you've, you've uh, kind of taken a similar approach for, for other areas that uh, that obviously need uh, policy, need attention, need solutions. So including sustainability, um, and I'll, I'll do a segue because you were recently awarded the, uh, uh, the Golden Medal by the city of Helsinki um, for your work in international cooperation. And they highlighted the work that you've been doing in leading uh, the Sustainable Development Goals implementation and 
uh, kind of that collaboration with cities around the world. So tell me a little bit about that work uh, when it comes to sustainability. And also I want to hear uh, what does a recognition like the one from the city of Helsinki represent for you since it's coming from, from your peers in, in uh, municipal administrations? I mean, honestly, it's extraordinary. There is a part of me that's sort of still like that bullied kid um, being made of, you know, made fun of for having a funny name um, because my real name's Pumi. I changed it to Penny. It's another story I can tell you about when I was like 11 or 12. My first real diplomatic move, I think, um, was that. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's pretty surreal. Um, you know, this is one of the first I'm, I'm like, I think one of four people that have ever, that's non-finished, that's ever received mm -hmm. this award. Um, it was, it's, it, you know, it is such an exceptional, um, you know, honor. You know, that really came from what I have really tried to do with this agency in the six years. So my agency has been around for over 50 years. New York City is host mm -hmm. to the largest diplomatic corps. So thus we exist for many reasons. But historically, it's always focused on the operational. And what I really mm -hmm. had wanted to do was reinforce this understanding that even though New York City is a city, a lot of people, you know, we are as large, if not larger, than 141 countries. I believe mm -hmm. that government should work for the people, and we are a government that is actively trying to work for our community. And so the policies and the best practices that we have happening in New York, whether it's around climate change, around how we treat our immigrant communities, this is something that will, be, will add value if we can exchange those ideas with other cities and other countries. Mm -hmm. And so we created a platform called Global Vision Urban Action, and we have been doing that work for the last six years. And, you know, Helsinki is a small but mighty city. They, mm -hmm. you know, Finland, they always win the happiness index. I mean, if I ever it's get true. pregnant again, I just want to go decamp out <laughs> there. They know how to take care of their community, but all of this yeah. is public policy. And so this understanding right. of how we connect through the sustainable development goals um, has been was was one of the reasons in which I got this this award. But it has really been about this fundamental understanding that what happens in our communities isn't just happening to us. Um, it is mm -hmm. happening in different contexts around the world, and we are all going to be better off the more we talk to each other and are exchanging and collaborating on those ideas. Rather than, I mean, it's literally the antithesis of the the walls that the Trump administration wanted to do. I'm just like, how mm. can we create all the virtual and literal bridges <laughs> to our counterparts around the world, including in Helsinki? So this season of the brand is female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group, women entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship. And they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Going back to COVID, it's been quite interesting seeing uh, recent media coverage around, uh, you know, speaking of how 
different countries, different cities are, are handling things and um, uh, coverage that's been highlighting how countries or regions led by women have been faring uh, a little better than, than the average uh, when it comes to their, their uh, handling of, of everything around COVID. Um, how, you know, what, what, are, what are your views on that and what do you think that says about female leadership in a political uh, or public administration context? <laughs> um, that is a great question. I'm going to start with the basic. It turns out that all the all the female leadership out in the world um, apparently believes in science. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're going to start with that really, really low bar. Um, they believe in science. Um, you know, there is there's it's like it's so complex, but the kind of empathy and focus on community is what, you know, I'm going to look at what's happening in New, Ze New Zealand. How she has handled, Jacinta Arden has handled dealing with COVID is directly related to how she dealt with that horrific uh, terrorist attack mm -hmm. at a mosque in the last few years. Um, yeah. There is something about a connection to community and empathy. I don't want to say is just a female trait, but you are seeing that come out in strategic, impactful ways in terms of global leadership. Whether it's Angela Merkel or it's been, you know, Jacinta Arden, you are seeing that um, around the world. I mean, I'm also going to say leadership that we're seeing, um, you know, at the EU level, at the IMF, uh, with Amina Mohammed as the Deputy Secretary General of the UN. Um, there is there is so much to be said about women being at the table and the decision-making table that has mm -hmm. been, um, game changing, but I don't, you know, there's just certain traits that I don't believe it's just women have it. It's that we may just recognize the value of how to use it better, if that makes mm. sense. Um, mm. And COVID has really highlighted that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Well, and actually I'm going to bring up, so I recently, um, for a podcast, I spoke with Amel Kerbul, who um, is the uh, former, she was, a, she was a first woman minister of tourism in Tunisia right after the Arab Spring, uh, when it was actually the first democratic elections for, for the country. And in speaking to me, she shared that uh, one of her biggest lessons, and you know, she had been an entrepreneur for, for many, many years, but when she um, uh, got involved in the world of politics, one of the lessons was she realized that as a woman, you can't be powerful and be liked. And <laughs> that certainly was based on her own experience. I'm curious yeah. to know how, what, what's your take on, on that question? That's going to be 50-50 true for me. There are definitely, um, and yeah, that actually goes back to like an early lesson that I learned too is part of the diplomacy of bringing people along on for me was my my work around women's rights is a kind of time and investment that you focus on people that are tending to dislike you or not wanting mm -hmm. to support your work. Um, I have found though in this particular role, the, the reputation and the relationships I've built have made me even more effective and successful. And so I do fundamentally believe that my power is to a certain, it correlates with how good people feel about me. 
I don't know if I'm Mm -hmm. necessarily liked, but I think Mm -hmm. that when my name comes up with certain ambassadors, they're like, we know we can work with her. And I think Mm -hmm. that is where, you know, so I, I understand what she's saying and she's talking, she's working in a much more difficult context, especially um, during the Arab spring. But for the, my work in particular, I've actually found that a lot of my power correlates um, with knowing that people feel good about me and at least my reputation to getting work done. Um, you gave an interview to Brown Girl magazine uh, not that long ago where it was highlighted that um, you, and I quote, you melanated the F-U-C-K out of your team. <laughs> that's, uh, that's like the best line ever. When I'm not in I government know, I, anymore, I, I, that's going to be like my bio tagline. <laughs> Once upon yeah, a time. Exactly. That, that should be the first line in your bio moving forward, basically. Um, which brings me to ask you, what does championing diversity look like for you? And you are a BIPOC woman of South Asian heritage, what does it look like in a in a you know a leadership context in terms of building building a team? And I ask that too, um, so that um, anybody else who's looking to champion diversity get inspired, uh, because a lot of people often wonder where to start. You know, I think part of how, where to start is thinking about how you're hiring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the one of something that I've really appreciated about this administration in terms of also gender equity, we can't ask how some how much somebody made previously. Completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a woman, we've probably been underpaid. The job yeah. is a job. You should get paid no matter what you were working before. Um, you know, to that line that was in that Brown Girl magazine, I um I hire people that are extremely talented and share similar values to me and the administration, right? We are out there advocating, um, you know, climate change and gender equity issues. And I'm hiring people that have worked in those areas and represented that. Um, it has been, it's also very important. And look at what, look at what Kamala and quite honestly, you know, Biden's team is looking like. Um, mm-hmm. It is heavily women. It is much more um, people of color than we've had historically. And it's not, because they're doing it for the sole reason of diversifying it, it's because these are the most talented people out there. And so when I look at my extremely melanated team, they are just extremely talented. And I just, and my, my, my team that hires, we, we care about those things. You know, I think um, it's not just it's, it's also people's experience, right? Mm-hmm. And that to me is really important when I think about what people bring to the, bring to the table. I bring to the table an experience of a survivor of you know domestic violence and I had been undocumented. I know what that fear looks like. You know, when we were talking about the census and how we were gonna get the word out, I had a visceral reaction because I remember when I was a kid and they were doing a census, we were undocumented. People knocked on our door and I remember it was like freeze don't even because they're with the government We're on duck because we didn't know that everybody should be counted and there would be no um, repercussions. And so knowing that the way that we brainstormed, how would we get out that, you know, the census was safe. All right, let's work with the consuls general. Let's work with our diplomatic corps and ensure that they are hearing from the most powerful people in their community, that everybody should be counted undocumented or not. And this is why it's safe. But like that experience directly correlated to the work way that we do our work. And that is, I think, true of everybody on my team in terms of how they show up. So it's experience, et cetera, but it's not, you know, the, the, the diversity is there, 
but we just hired the best to do the work in the most effective way. What's your, and speaking of championing diversity and championing the, the younger generation, what would be your advice to young women interested in following in your footsteps and uh, women interested in, you know, playing a, a, an active role in public administration as a, a diplomat or even as a woman in politics? Um, I have a couple. One, especially, and I just remember this like so viscerally, but in my 20s, I there were just certain jobs I wanted that I just couldn't get. And, you know, it's, especially in the human rights world, like you always want to be the program officer. You don't right. want to be, you know, the development fundraiser. Um, I'm pretty sure that's still the same. And instead of giving up on those organizations, I decided to do jobs that I don't necessarily like, but I like the organization. Mm -hmm. Just okay. thinking about how are you building a skill set within the context that is getting you paid, um, but also makes you feel good because you care about these institutions or you care about the work that you're achieving. So that I think is something that's really important in terms of the, the first few years of building your career is just not giving up because you didn't get exactly what you wanted, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there is that, that aspect to it. I also think the networks, um, the connections that you have, you know, there is such a bad connotation to networking. Oh, she's like a networking, you know, Nazi. Right. They say like really like disparaging things. And I'm not saying like go to a party or get out and just say, hi, I'm Penny. I want this to, and that kind of thing. You've got mm -hmm. to really connect with people. Right. And that to me, it's funny. There are people that I met at a party or like interacted with a few times, haven't seen in 10 years. And then I find out they're the ones that like recommended me for something. Mm -hmm. And again, it goes back to that point of just when you connect with someone, be authentic in a way where they will feel good about you. And you know mm -hmm. what that means. You know, you don't have to be hyper, you know, sociable and hyper, you know, sophisticated in this. There's just a way that everybody can show up in their own way that the other person knows this feels good. Like, mm -hmm. you know, just be a real person. And I think it's a, I, I think that kind of networking over the years really is so important. How do you show up and help other people? You know, mm -hmm. like these are the kinds of things that um, that I think have really benefited my ability to like what I said in the beginning, take advantage of the hard work and luck coming together. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Like I kind of needed that entire foundation. Um, mm -hmm. but that that's what I think how it how it happened. And I'm gonna ask you my favorite question to ask all my guests on the show, which is what do you wish women would do more of? Oh, that's a good question. Um Take more credit, you know, speak up. Like if somebody, if somebody takes your idea, you should be like, actually, no, that was my idea. And I realized like some that. of that is, you know, the context you're in, the power dynamics that you're in. Um, but I will say now that I get to be a quote unquote, somewhat powerful person, I want, I am constantly doing that and encouraging it because more, more women need to know that um, we can show up the way we want to show up. Mm -hmm. and take credit for it. Thank you so much, Penny. Looking forward to seeing what you're up to in 2021. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I love the brand as female. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back in a week with a new guest. Don't forget to subscribe, give the show a rating and a review where possible. I'd love to hear from you. Visit at The Brand is Female on Instagram or my own account at Ava Hartling. 
Yeah.